Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, October 10th, 2022. On the show today, news, a new Disney dining survey, and in listener questions, how much would you love a virtual walkthrough of opening day Epcot? Then in our main segment, Jim tells us about the 1999 redo of Epcot's Journey into Imagination. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that sometimes life is a tornado and you're the cow being spun around for cinematic purposes. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Moving right along, Len. <laughs> you and I both have spent far too much time in the past week on planes. And so it just. Planes, trains, boats. There we go. Yeah. There we go. I'm like one submarine away from transportation bingo here, I think. <laughs> Hot air balloon. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Okay. Well, good to hear that for now you've stopped moving. Oh, hold on, Jim. There's a Kimmel double parked outside. I think my ride is here. Hold on. (laughs) Wow. That's quite the Uber. (laughs) I was going to try and make an Uber joke and couldn't. All right. All right. Let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Henry Pine, Will Bostick, Chicago Daily, and Dan Panos. And longtime subscribers, Dr. Kai Layton. Mark McInnes, Redbeard25, and well-known Steelers fan Sam Maricini. Jim, these are the Disney Imagineers who proposed an Adventureland redo that made Swiss Family Treehouse the lift hill for a water slide into the Jungle Cruise rivers. They say Disney management was on board with the idea until the Jungle Cruise hippos started using the slide and the skipper started having flashbacks to the infamous Flying Hippos incident of 83, which put an end to the whole thing. True story. Okay. <laughs> ah, yes, the flying hippos of '83. Yes, yes. It's important to establish uh, lore in your stories. <laughs> Absolutely, and that guy sense at this point, Google it is being hammered. <laughs> flying hippos. Exactly. Exactly. Just want to see those images. All right, on to the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, as a reminder, you and I are doing the second annual Gingerbread Challenge in Walt Disney World starting Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Also a live podcast recording on December 2nd. So check out storybookdestinations.com for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, you and I are doing the Galactic Star Cruiser Mm -hmm. uh, on March 30th, 2023. And we've currently booked somewhere between 22 and 26 cabins out of 100. Um, and there's only, I hear, uh, around 20, 23 cabins left on the entire ship. So if you want to join a band of stellar misfits on a journey for the ages, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney dish to get a quote. All right. And speaking of celebrations, Jim, did you know that Epcot has a holiday festival? <laughs> where, where, why do they bury this news? I don't know. I don't know. Tell me of this holiday festival, Len. It's called the Epcot Festival of the Holidays. It runs November 25th to the 30th. And they just announced the entertainment lineup for the countries in World Showcase that are participating in the holidays, uh, holiday events. So uh, we have Las Posadas Celebration at Mexico, which runs uh, Sunday through Thursday. So not Friday and Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got uh, a mischievous, magical barn Santa in Norway. And Jim, to me, this sounds either like a children's TV show or, or a horror movie. Depends on who's directing, right? 
There's a mischievous, magical barn scent. Santa. That's one of those sentences where there's one too many words in here. (laughs) Put the pipe down and step away from the from the typewriter. Yeah, there you go. I depending on I'm not sure how that goes. Uh, Also, Chinese lion dancer uh, Sundays Mm -hmm. through Saturdays. I will say that um, I was looking at the showtime schedules uh, for this, Mm -hmm. and thanks to our friends over at wdwmagic.com for that. But whoever's scheduling these things at Epcot did a really good job of taking guest flow into account here. So the Mexico show starts at 11.05 and lasts 25 minutes. Then five minutes after that, the Norway show begins. And then 10 minutes after that, the China show begins. So whoever came up with that schedule, you know what you're doing, so keep it up. Um, oh, cool. Wow. Few, yeah, really good. A few other things. So La Bafana comes back to Italy. There's mm-hmm. a Daruma storyteller in Japan. There's the Hanukkah storyteller uh, between Morocco and France, you know, well-known Jewish outposts, Morocco and France. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not sure why that's not in the United States Pavilion. Uh, Père Noël in France, mm-hmm. Father Christmas in the United Kingdom, and then the Canadian Holiday Voyagers in Canada. The mm-hmm. one thing that's a little strange is uh, Santa Claus, who's in the Odyssey Pavilion, Sundays through Saturdays, starting at 11 a.m. And the last uh, greeting is it starts at 6.30 and goes for an hour. So Santa's on stage for an hour at a time. The um, The thing I can't figure out there is, uh, you can't get through Santa Claus and get to La Posadas in Mexico by the time they start. So you probably have to catch it after you go through Canada. But mm-hmm. I don't know that you can get through all of World Showcase in seven and a half hours. That would be, I mean, maybe, but like that last 630 greeting might be um, might be busy. Yeah, and I have to assume this is going to be in the space where they had that wonderful future of Epcot exhibit, right? That Epcot theater. experience, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm guessing, yeah. Oh, can you imagine like a 360 degree circle vision of the North Pole there with reindeer? I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but that would not be bad. Snow, stuff like that. Yeah, not bad. Could be cool. Could be cool. So, All right. Speaking of holidays, Jim, Disney's announced the Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind uh, will have a Christmas song added to its rotation. And please, I beg you, theme park gods, make it the Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer song. <laughs> because that would be fitting for that particular ride at that oh. particular time. Oh, you're killing me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> One more big Disney announcement. Uh, they've announced an under the sea retheming for mm-hmm. the current pirates themed rooms at Caribbean beach. Uh, work there should start in a couple months in December and be done sometime in 2023. So a uh, nice update for those rooms. I'm interested yeah. to see though, uh, Jim, if they go back and redo everything else in Caribbean beach anytime soon, because the last time I did a walkthrough of those rooms, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, there are other two or three different kinds of flooring Mm -hmm. in the rooms. Like some rooms still had carpet when I walked through last year. Some had the new sort of vinyl hardwoods and some had something I didn't recognize. Like the resort is big enough Mm -hmm. that I guess the, um, the, the refurb that got started right before the pandemic never got completed. So now they're in a state of like some rooms are older themed. Some rooms are newer themed. I mean, this is going to take care of a few hundred. So that's good. It's but, also, yeah, it's just it, it's bizarre to see them like not update an entire resort, even when that was on the books. No, what's also kind of intriguing here is, is remember 2023 is when we get our live action Little Mermaid redo. So one wonders no. if our Under the Sea is going to be aerial classic, the, the Little Mermaid, oh, right, the yeah. hand drawn one. Yeah, I didn't think of that. That's actually good timing though. That's a good marketing opportunity for Disney. Absolutely. All right, Jim, on to surveys. Our friend Ryan sent in more screen caps from a survey we saw a couple weeks ago 
from Disney about dining options. Mm -hmm. And this one contains many more details. Remember, we talked about this, I think, two episodes back, where Disney was asking questions to guests staying at the Grand Flow mm -hmm. about the general location they ate breakfast at, like at their hotel or another restaurant, on-site or off-site, and so on. And then about the specific location they ate at. But then the survey that Ryan sent in includes many more new questions. And I want to go over them just to get your opinion on some of them. Because I think yeah. I know where they're going, but I'd love to hear a second perspective. Mm -hmm. All right. So the first question of the survey, the first important question of the survey is uh, the, like the one we saw before. Thinking about all the places where you may have consumed food and beverages on the date of your visit, where did you eat your primary meal during the breakfast period? Please think of breakfast as any time before 1130. So the choices are Epcot. In this case, I guess because Ryan said that's where he's going. Mm -hmm. A non-Disney restaurant near the parks or the resorts. In the resorts uh, that I was staying, in the resort, in a resort that I was not staying at, uh, in the in the car on the way to the activities I did mm -hmm. while traveling and other, and then or you know I skipped breakfast. Mm -hmm. All right. Then the um, the next question we what we didn't see before was mm -hmm. why did you not buy any food or beverages from a table service restaurant? for your primary breakfast during your visit. Hmm. And this is interesting because if you're Disney and you see one of these answers bubble up to the top, mm -hmm. you can address it through some combination of service changes mm -hmm. and advertising, right? Mm -hmm. All right. So the options that were given here were it didn't fit into my budget. I wasn't aware of table service options. There were no reservations or availability where I wanted to eat. Uh, restaurants were too crowded. I didn't like the menu options. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there long enough to sit and eat. It takes too long to sit and eat in a table mm -hmm. service restaurant. I want to save my appetite for another meal, which is actually a great um, response I didn't think of. Mm -hmm. I already had plans to eat elsewhere. I have picky eaters in my party. Mm -hmm. um, I or someone in my party had special dietary needs. I was full from a previous meal or snack and I wasn't hungry. The total cost of food and beverages is too high. Other and then I did visit a table service restaurant. So t interesting thing there: two hmm. questions around um, uh, two options for budget. Then there's also uh, too much food, or you know I wasn't hungry. What have we been hearing lately from the food service side about hiring? I'm just wondering. Uh, the, the one that kind of jumped out at me: it takes too long to eat at table service restaurants. So this could be a combination of things because you you and I have talked about labor shortages. Mm -hmm. Which is really, Disney's just not paying enough to servers mm -hmm. <laughs> to make it worth their while to, to work for Disney, right? That's the mm -hmm. other side of that coin. Um, but the other thing that I think was interesting there, remember when Disney had the dining plan mm -hmm. and they introduced the alcoholic beverage mm -hmm. into the plan? And you and I sat there one day and mm -hmm. watched the server make a couple of extra trips back and forth to the table. One to explain mm -hmm. the new option and then another one to get the drinks and bring them. I was, I was wondering if that incremental extra time mm -hmm. is one of those things where it's like, we're not going to bring back the dining plan because we've already got labor shortages and we're not going to, we, we can't bring back a more expensive dining plan with fewer options mm -hmm. that people will like and combine that with a labor thing. That could be a reason why we're not seeing it, you know, that incapacity. That is definitely a possibility here, but just the notion that Disney is digging down into quick service and table service and you know uh, yeah. that sort of thing. Right now, it's just like, okay, what else do we got here? Uh, other questions. Uh, if you return to the Walt Disney Resort in the next five years, what's the likelihood that you'll dine on property for breakfast? Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan said probably will, which I think is the right 
mm-hmm. sort of thing there. Okay. Here's the uh, the next interesting question, mm-hmm. um, and this is for in the parks. Mm-hmm. For each of the places below where you had a snack, drink, or meal, mm-hmm. when did you consume it? And so for Epcot, it's before 10 a.m., mm-hmm. 10 to 11.30, 11.30 to 2, 2 to 4.30, 4.30 to 6, 6 mm-hmm. p.m. or later, I don't recall. And at this point, Jim, I went back to Ryan and I was like, are we looking at a Disney survey here or is this Weight Watchers? Because I can't tell right now. And the next question kind of follows that up. Mm-hmm. And for each location, what kind of food or beverage was it? Mm-hmm. Was it a full meal, a snack, a snack brought from outside, mm-hmm. a beverage I purchased, or a beverage I purchased from outside and brought in? Then the uh, the next question is, which of the following best describes how much pre-planning you did for dining experiences before you arrived in the central Florida area? And I've not seen this question before. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not this exact question. A lot of pre-planning, including making most reservations ahead of time. Some pre-planning, I had an idea of places I wanted to eat, but made very few reservations, or very little or no pre-planning, decided where to eat once I arrived. And for anyone who's filling out a Disney survey, my sense is they're checking that first box mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the next thing was, next question was related to Ryan's experience at Sunshine Seasons at the Land Pavilion, which I think we all like because mm-hmm. it's got a lot of table space and it's got relatively good food for you know lots of people. Mm-hmm. Please rate the value for price mm-hmm. of the food or beverages at Sunshine Seasons. Uh, so excellent, very good, good, just okay or poor. And please rate the menu selection, which is having something on the menu that everyone in your party would eat or drink at Sunshine Seasons. Uh, and then the next couple of questions... Did you have any kids in your party mm-hmm. during this visit to Sunshine Seasons? And then please rate the variety of children's choices on the menu there. Also, uh, two questions around rating the taste of the food or beverages and then the quality of the food or beverages. Mm-hmm. Then the uh, the last question was around Sunshine Seasons was, why did you decide to eat there to begin with? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, uh, <laughs> like, what made, you, what made you come here? And here, I think... This is another question that sort of ties back to the original one that we saw. So the first option for this question was, I wasn't aware of other locations at Epcot, which given the number of festivals, mm-hmm. maybe that brings you to like an eye exam <laughs> if, you, if you check that one. Uh, a cast member recommended Sunshine Seasons. Mm-hmm. A friend, family member, or acquaintance recommended mm-hmm. it. It offered good prices or value for the prices. It was the only restaurant that had availability, and this is the one that, that Ryan checked. Mm-hmm. Um, the other members of my party wanted to eat there. The atmosphere and theming was the main reason. It was a recommendation via Disney Genie, and I think if anyone checks that, mm-hmm. I would be shocked. Um, I had a good previous experience there. I saw a social media post about it. It was one of the top places at which I wanted to dine. I liked the menu selection for adults. I liked the menu selection for kids, and it was convenient or close to where we uh, were, would be or where we were going next. So that was, uh, that was good. The, uh, the next two questions, though, mm-hmm. going back to the stuff around cost. I've never seen this in a Disney survey before, Jim. Mm-hmm. Please estimate how much you spent on food or beverages throughout your day at the following locations you visited on the date of your visit. So at Epcot, how much did you spend? And Ryan put $350. Mm-hmm. And then for the Walt Disney World Resort Hotel that he was staying at, put $45. So then the next question after that is, during this visit to Epcot, did you spend more about the same or less mm-hmm. than you anticipated spending on food and or beverages in total? And Ryan checked more than I expected to spend. Mm-hmm. So the follow-up question to that, and again, let me say this. I've never seen these questions before in a dining survey. Yeah. But the next question is, why did mm-hmm. you spend more than you expected? Mm-hmm. Um, so one option was discounts. Mm-hmm. Another option was, I saw more than I expected to want and or try. Uh, new menu items offered. 
it was more expensive than I thought and other. And Ryan checked the more expensive Mm -hmm. option there, which I think a lot of people are going to check. So then overall, how would you rate the variety of menu choices at Epcot on October 5th? Mm -hmm. Excellent. Very good. Good. Just okay. Poor, not applicable. Mm -hmm. And then uh, same question, but for variety of restaurants, like how would you rate the variety of restaurants at Epcot? Mm -hmm. Apparently Disney knew that uh, Ryan did not order his meal at Epcot using the My Disney Experience app. Mm -hmm. So the question was why? And I think Disney here is looking for reasons to drive people to the app. Mm -hmm. Because remember, the app is just an upselling engine, right? So it was, I didn't want to enter my credit card. I couldn't use cash to pay for my meal in the app. I forgot I could use the app until it was too late. The process of ordering a meal in the app is too difficult. Mm -hmm. I preferred to see the food menu or restaurant in person, which is the option that Ryan checked. Mm -hmm. Um, The app wasn't working or there were Wi-Fi issues. I couldn't use a voucher or coupon to pay for my meal in the app. I couldn't order allergy-friendly menu items. Mm-hmm. I couldn't apply a discount I was eligible for. I wanted to talk to a cast member, or mm-hmm. I prefer in-person interactions. It was a last-minute decision to dine there. Uh, we didn't want to use the app to order food. I couldn't use multiple Disney gift cards to pay for my meal. The line to order at the register was short. There was no line to order at a register. Mm-hmm. And I was concerned that it would drain my phone's battery. So the last two things are interesting because one of the things that, that Christine has been doing mm-hmm. for us in the parks over the last couple of weeks is doing side-by-side orders mm-hmm. using mobile ordering and then just walking up mm-hmm. to see which locations offer faster service either way. And also the vast majority of time, mobile ordering is faster than walking up, but it depends on where you are mm-hmm. and the time of day. So we should probably have Chrissy back to talk about that. Absolutely. But I do love the last two questions. I would concern. I was concerned that it would drain my phone's battery, mm-hmm. and the line to order at a register was short, or there was no line to order. That last couple. Uh, the last question I thought was interesting was: Did you or anyone in your group have to consider any of the following dietary needs or preferences mm-hmm. during your visit? And, have, and so, list a bunch of things from low calorie to and low sodium to halal mm-hmm. to vegetarian, vegan, mm-hmm. you know, and everything, everything in between. The interesting thing for me there is, I guess there's no way for Disney to track the specific dietary needs that you mention mm-hmm. when you're in a restaurant. So this might be a way of saying, you know what, 20% of our uh, the people who dine with us need things that are made without shellfish. Or, you know, 10% are need stuff that's made without soy. To sort of like break it down. And then mm-hmm. you could take that information and figure out how to customize the menu options to fit more people using standard ingredients. True. But, yeah. but but again, you look at the series of questions and, you know, and, and, and understanding how serious, especially at Epcot, you know, Disney yeah. takes food. In fact, half of the reason we're seeing the future world redo that we see, you know, with world nature and, you know, world discovery and world celebration is that we're going to see the show kitchens that you yeah. know, surround world showcase start to creep into that space as well. Right. And you mentioned this when we were, we were in Epcot together um, earlier this week. Mm-hmm. And we, as we were sitting in Connections Cafe, mm-hmm. you pointed out the fact that they've got show kitchens right there. In fact, it's 360 degrees. You can walk around four of them. Yeah. Yeah. When you hear a survey like this that, that is so specific about sunshine seasons questions, it's not like 
that restaurant is going to undergo some sort of massive redo. I mean, half the reason. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not going to become a uh, a Japanese kitchen anytime soon. I mean, no, it's just yeah. No. If anything, the the sale point of that dining experience is the exact same sales point from '82. The the restaurant rotates. You get to look down into the land. They're certainly not stepping away from that idea, but just interesting that they're gathering that much detail about that particular tried-and-true dining experience. Yeah, I mean, overall, I think this is a great survey from Disney. I think they're asking all the right questions here. Mm -hmm. Um, I do think that they're going to take these survey responses and do two things. One, Mm -hmm. adjust the offerings somehow for the restaurants that are named. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then number two, definitely target marketing Mm -hmm. uh, towards Mm -hmm. that. You know, so if you say, you know, again, if, you know, if, if it comes out that like, and I'm making up a number, 50% of the people who eat in a Disney restaurant mm-hmm. are eating there because uh, Dis- they know that Disney will do great with any allergies or dietary preferences they have. Like that's something they could put into marketing, mm-hmm. right? I yeah, agree. I think that's I great. Yeah, like I said, overall, great survey from Disney. Mm-hmm. I think they're asking all the right questions here. Interesting to see what um, what they do with the data. Yep. All right, a couple of uh, listener questions mm-hmm. uh, from Peter the Oyster Eater. Mm-hmm. I always like uh, rhyming names. Mm-hmm. Dear Len and Jim, I'd just like to point out a small error in a recent show. Not every castle park has a Peter Pan's flight. Hong Kong does not have such a ride. Keep up your excellent work. Greetings from Austria. Peter. Yeah. All right, so from the land down under. Mm-hmm. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of them started a war. One of them one of them fights with uh, emus every once in a while. I, you know, I, I, I can't keep them straight. Duly noted. And I I apologize, Peter, you are correct. Though what is fascinating is that with the Fantasy Springs project that's underway now uh, at the the, the Tokyo Disney Resort, the two parks there are going to to wind up with Peter Pan-themed rides. So on average, we'll have one in each park. Yeah, there we go. But but again, he is correct. (laughs) I I got that wrong. Fair enough. All right. And also uh, an email from Matt. He says, I'm not sure if anyone has sent this in, but there's a group of people, including Martin Smith, who have been creating a uh, software on Unreal Engine that's a walk around of Epcot on opening day. It's called Futureport 82. The level of detail is amazing. There's a Facebook page and a YouTube walk around video. I thought it was a good tie in with the 40th and the previous episode about Communicore. Have you seen this, Jim? I have just seen highlights, and (sighs) I have to say, it's some stunning work there. Yeah, it's really, really good. So imagine a virtual reality walkthrough of opening day Epcot without people, mm-hmm. where you can go into the restaurants, you can go into the pavilions. I don't think you can go on the rides yet, mm-hmm. but it's got lighting effects. They can do uh, you know daytime, nighttime storms. It's really, really well done. So on YouTube, look for a Future Port 82. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's one of those things where like you didn't know you needed it until you saw it, and then it's like, <laughs> How do I get more of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, really, really fantastic stuff. So highly recommend it. Yep. All right, Jim, a couple of patents. We haven't done patents in a while, but we noticed a couple of um, couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. that some kind of camera contraption was mounted on the ride vehicles over a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And when I was looking through Disney patents, I found something that might be relevant. So this is a patent application that was submitted by Disney earlier this year, published in June. It's called Adaptive Multi-Window Configuration Based Upon Gaze Tracking. Hmm. So I think what they're looking for here is to try and figure out where people are looking on the rides. But what would they do with that? To circle back to our previous show and where we were talking about that concept art that was shown for a redo of Dino Land. 
at Animal Kingdom. Remember that based on the piece of concept art that was out there, what appears to be being considered is leaving the ride system for a countdown to extinction dinosaur mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it in place, but going with a Zootopia based experience. So okay. my understanding is this technology that's in place now isn't necessarily going to be used for dinosaur, which, let's face it, is has seen better days. Sure, yeah. Just sort of let's do some information gathering about how people use this attraction, where they look, that sort of thing, because we may be revisiting this ride system for Zootopia. And how can we best use it to that effect? So this may be more about data gathering than a future guest experience. Yeah, that's what I think. Because in a ride like Dinosaur, where you can see you know, in front of you, mm -hmm. let's assume that you, there's enough lighting to see in front of you, mm -hmm. you know, where you basically got a 180 degree field of vision, mm -hmm. right? The question then is where you're looking. Mm -hmm. And we all know, Jim, that Disney might design stuff to prompt you or mm -hmm. to uh, nudge you to look one way. Mm -hmm. But until you actually build the ride, you don't know. Yep. So I yep. think to your point, they're gathering data here to say, mm -hmm. you know, in the areas where you have things on both the left-hand side mm -hmm. and the right-hand side, what do you look at? And then they can figure out why you might look there. And I think that's what this, that, that's what this is. Because again, if you're going to spend money, you don't want to spend money on stuff that the guests don't see no, or the guests no. don't appreciate, right? Yep. So. Yeah, I definitely love it. Also, here's a uh, here's another patent, and this one is from uh, Disney Research in Zurich, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is interesting because um, we talked about this on a show back before Galactic Star Cruiser opened. But mm -hmm. Disney Research in Zurich helped design the story scheduling software mm -hmm. that's used on the Galactic Star Cruiser, mm -hmm. and this one is a patent for something called location based interactive storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think those two things link in because every single person uh, who's listed an, as an inventor on this. Mm -hmm patent application is from uh, Switzerland and Disney mm -hmm. Research. So it looks like they're uh, still looking to develop more and better ways to do storytelling on the Star Cruiser. Okay. And not to belabor the obvious, but when, when you see who's being brought into Galaxy's Edge in California, we have Fennec Shand and, and Boba Fett. Uh, and starting this fall, we have you know, the Mandalorian and Grogu. It's not too hard to believe that further on down the line, especially for, for the customers who've done the initial sailing, that, you know, uh, revisiting this on-the-ground cruise experience set in the Star Wars universe to go with the franchises that guests are, are most responding to strongly now, you know, Mandalorian and, and the like. Right. And they can blend that into the to the overall narrative. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That makes so, sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's adaptable. I think that's a good mm -hmm. idea. Yep. A couple of other interesting things, um, other Disney patents. Uh, one for something called an untethered robot with hybrid air and water power for hovering and quick airborne movements. So I want to uh, I want to point out a couple of things here. That uh, mm -hmm. one of the inventors, fourth one down on the on the, uh, on the list, mm -hmm. is Grant Imahara. Um, previously hey. of Mythbusters, Mythbusters and he passed away in yeah. 2020. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So sadly, he's no longer with us, but uh, still on the patent app. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the summary here is interesting. So they talk mm -hmm. about like why things like robots that uh, you want to hover and move in an airborne fashion have all kinds of limitations on them, right? Mm -hmm. So they said here, you know, the inventors recognize that a new robot can be designed, built, and operated to maintain convincing character appearances and movement. 
the new robot is configured to use thrust-based propulsion and actuation during its flight, such as before, during, and after flight, created by dropping or releasing the robot at a significant height, e.g. 10 to 50 feet or greater, onto a landing surface. The new robot design includes a hybrid or combination air and liquid-based propulsion system to provide propulsion, such as deceleration during fall, to create a smooth landing or to provide a quick reduction or increase in velocity. So that's interesting because it looks like they're trying to land mm-hmm. a robot. Like this sounds like a SpaceX problem, right? It does. It does. But at the same time, I can't help but think about the Stuntronic. Right. Yeah. It's always a question of what are you trying to invent for what purpose? And there's some very specific things they're looking for this robot to do. Yeah. Hovering and then you notice it lands in a pose. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking they're Spider-Man and Black Widow mm-hmm. would be the mm-hmm. two the two characters or you know Hulk. Okay. Um, the the funny thing is uh, as we were touring uh, the parks last week we were with uh, you know former Disney Imagineer Jim Scholl mm-hmm. and one of the things that he pointed out was that um, when offered the Spider-Man Stuntronic mm-hmm. Disneyland Paris said well for the same money we can hide hire like twenty walk around characters if people like twenty walk around characters mm-hmm. more than one Stuntronic so we're going to do that. So it's it's not always about the technology, I guess is no. what I would say with this band. No, no, no. All right, one more quick thing, and this was interesting, only because I've never seen mm-hmm. uh, such a short patent application before, but Disney's filed a patent for a new type of water bottle mm-hmm. with a flip-up straw in the middle, which is, <laughs> I guess, mildly interesting. So it's got a strap, and then it's sort of like a half-dome top, and there's a slider in the middle of the dome, mm-hmm. where if you slide it back, a rubber straw pops up. And I think I've seen this design before, but maybe not this exact design, you know, somewhere else. But I think I've seen this before, and Disney's like, we need to capture this before we uh, put. Because didn't we see one of these with a um, with a BB-8 theme on the Disney Wish Cruise? I believe so. Which brings me to the story I want to share about our dinner at Arendelle. And <laughs> do you remember when somebody brought up the miniature device from the Marvel restaurant? Oh, it was a Marvel thing. Yeah, yeah. And so it was a, it was a thing that, that was supposed to be a water bottle, and it was passed around by like six, to like six people trying to figure out how, how to how? drink from it. Yes. <laughs> Finally, one of the servers came over and, and just showed that you tap the top, suddenly this straw popped out of nowhere. But, but yeah, the six adults couldn't figure it out. You know, it's funny because I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So, like, for comedic effect, I said, well, I'm in Mensa. Let me just show you how this is done. And then I struggled with the thing for 10 minutes. And I was, like, 30 seconds away from beating it on the table mm-hmm. to get it to open. And the waiter was like, yeah, I'll, I'll get this for you. Well, so, again, the, again, the Groucho Marx joke to the effect that it's so simple. And a six-year-old child could do this. Someone run out and get a six-year-old child. I have no idea what to do. <laughs> exactly. should have said that. That's great. All right, uh, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us about the first remake of Epcot's Journey into Imagination, which happened in 1999. We'll be right back. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Do you remember the sorts of problems you were asked to solve back when you were in school? X plus Y equals Z. Well, who could have dreamed, once you became an adult, that you'd be facing problems that were far tougher to solve than algebra? Things like, how do I get out of my own way? I faced a similar sort of challenge right after my divorce, when when my ex took our then-infant daughter and moved 6,000 miles away. There's no other way to say it, folks. I was a wreck. Mind you, it all worked out in the end, in large part because... 
I was smart enough to listen to the advice of friends and family and then got into therapy, which was where I then learned the skills to, well, be less stressed, become more confident, realize that there were brighter days ahead. I honestly have to say there is no better feeling when you finally learn how to find the solutions to your own problems. And, and talking to a therapist can help you acquire just those sorts of problem-solving skills. So if you find yourself in a similar sort of situation, if life's gotten to be a little overwhelming, well, why not give BetterHelp a try? BetterHelp is convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. And you can get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time. Look, if you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DisneyDish today to get 10% off your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we're back. All right, Jim. The original Journey into Imagination opened at Epcot in 1983. It was designed by Tony Baxter and Steve Kirk, one of Future World's highlights, in my opinion, right out of the gate. And it introduced us to now classic Epcot characters, Figment and the Dreamfinder. Then, Jim, in the late 1990s, we all lost our collective minds, whether it was sweater vests, low-rise jeans, or, you know, seeing the Macarena at every wedding, bat mitzvah, and political rally. I have to say... Jim, the leadership of this country kind of got off track. And that includes the leadership at Disney, who decided that Journey into Imagination needed an update. Am I right? Yes. Well, but it wasn't necessarily that out of the blue they decided it needed an update. There was actually language in the contract with Kodak, in fact, with everybody who, who agreed to sponsor a World Showcase Pavilion. Every 10 years, you're going to refresh this. Kodak actually got a gimme for a while. And that was largely because they have a long, long history with the company line. I mean, you know, they came in in 55. They were one of the original lessees. Eastman Kodak actually had a shop on Main Street. And it did so well that Kodak was like, well, you know, we clearly have to, to get in the Disney business. So if you go now to YouTube and you, and you want to watch the special from uh, June of 59 for the opening of uh, the Matterhorn, the, the subs, uh, the monorail, uh, the show is literally called Kodak Presents Disneyland 55. So they're in there with Disney right from the get-go. And so, and when, of course, uh, you know, when Disney World opens in October of 71, Kodak is there as well. I remember talking with folks at Disney to the effect of, and you understand, of course, that Cinderella Castle is one of the most photographed things on the planet. And it's like, wait, I asked once, well, where did you get that information? It's like, oh, Kodak gave that to us. They contacted all, you know, so many of the 
the little you know photo kiosks used to see in parking lots and that sort of thing, and they keep tabs over what image came up over and over again. And Cinderella Castle was right there. So we jump ahead to 1975. Epcot has officially been announced as this is the thing we're going to do this, and Kodak is among the very first com- companies to raise its hand and say we want in. And Disney, understanding now it's been 20 years since Disneyland opened, so it's like, okay, we're going to give you the plum. You know, we're going to give you the pavilion, our imagination pavilion, which is going to have uh, the only two Disney-esque characters, uh, the Dreamfinder and Figment. And speaking of sending folks to YouTube to watch stuff, if you watched Epcot, the opening celebration at the 18-minute mark, Danny Kay and Drew Barrymore are introduced to the Dreamfinder, who, who they're told lives in the Imagination Pavilion. And in the lead up to the introduction of the characters, the Dreamfinder is the keeper of the sparks of imagination. And, and then yeah. through the magic of really lousy 1980s special effects, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, that's kind of a bad wipe. And the, the Dreamfinder is there with a figment puppet on his arm. And, and he then introduced Danny Kay and Drew to my assistant and good right arm, Figment. And the segment ends after the Dreamfinder reads this poem about what can be found in the Imagination Pavilion. And you get to see some footage of what's supposedly in the building. Drew and Danny walk off in the direction of the Imagination Pavilion. But, but as you pointed out, doesn't open till 83. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a, <laughs> Like, hey, let's go walk into the... Oh, we can't get into that building. And Drew Barrymore had to live there for six months. Well, there the you go. There we go. Right. No, waiting desperately for E.T. to rescue her. But that tells you where Kodak was in how Disney viewed Kodak. You know, we are going to surrender time in this, you know, one hour long special on CBS for an attraction that isn't even open yet. But it's like, come March of 83, this is going to be something to see. So it opens and wasn't just the ride. It was also the 3D movie next door, Magic Journeys. And for a time, Kodak could slide on that, given what was going on in Disney company history during that period that, you know, the first the Green Mailers, then Ron Miller gets replaced by Michael Eisner, and then he's got to figure out how to turn Disney Studios around. So they were willing to let the whole update the pavilion every 10 years, things slide. Sure. But come February of 86, we get Captain EO, and everybody's happy because now there's another reason to go back there. And also, there is kind of the word that comes from the people at Epcot. It's like, well, don't do anything to mess with the ride because we're selling $500,000 worth of figment plush a year, and we really like that. And so for a time, it's just leave the ride alone. Don't touch it. And then if we jump ahead to November of 94, Captain EO gives way to Honey, I Shrunk the Audience. So same thing. Got a brand new 3D movie in there that's tied to a popular film series. There's no real reason for us to mess with the ride. And and again, we don't want to do anything that interferes with that $500,000 worth of figment plush sales every year. But now it's 1998, Len. And the folks at at Disney finally reach out to Kodak and go, we're 15 years into you sponsoring the attraction. And again, if you look at your contract, five years ago, we were supposed to update the ride. So when would you like to get started with this stuff? 
Now, none of this stuff happens in a vacuum. And, and Len, I don't need to tell you what happened in the late 90s in regard to the rise of digital photography. Right. And back then, I mean, digital photography was just starting, but it had already started to eat away at low-end camera markets, no. right? And you could you could sort of see the writing on the wall that no, no, no. every year cameras were getting, you know, much, much better in terms of resolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but at the same time, the actual physical sales of, of film for cameras fell through the floor. So much so that Kodak, which is based in Rochester, New York, in, in order to, to, to triage the situation, by January of 1998, they've laid off 10,000 workers with an effort to try to right the ship and pull the company out of the red. And meanwhile, here's Disney talking with Kodak executives about, you know, we were thinking uh, in order to freshen up Journey into Imagination, how would you feel about putting a celebrity or two in the ride? How do you feel about basketball legend Michael Jordan? He's available to us now. Or, or better yet, do you know those claymation characters, Wallace and Gromit? We've got the rights to use them too. You know, Now, mind you, we're going to have to pay a little more to get these people's likenesses in a theme park, but you know, the, so that'll bump up the, the the price of redoing the project. And Kodak executives, executives are like, "No, we cannot do this. We have no money to spare. I know what we're contractually obligated to do. Or we've read the contract, but we cannot honor the terms of this deal." Yeah. If we gave you millions to retool a theme park, t- or at the same time. You know, we're laying off 10,000 employees. Wall Street right. and our shareholders would revolt. Would revolt, yeah. So here's the interesting thing about this. I went back and looked, and mm. film camera sales peaked mm. in around 1997, mm. around 37 million cameras sold. But yeah. by 99, mm. they were already in a steep decline. So within 10 years of the peak, so the peak mm. again was like 97, within 10 years, mm. film camera sales were basically zero. Mm-hmm. The drop off between like 2000, the year 2000 and the year 2006. Mm-hmm. So within six years, mm-hmm. you basically lost 80% of the market. Yep. And, and the writing was already on the wall here. Like Kodak knew what was going on. Yeah. So to your point, there's no way that they could spend millions of dollars on a theme park ride redo in that environment. But it gets worse, Len, because here's Kodak looking at what they've committed annually to spending to keep up the original version of Journey into Imagination. Very elaborate effects. And and if you remember just that first room where you're keeping pace with the Dreamfinder when he introduces Figment, when he's on his airship. I mean, Disney had never done anything like that before. And, and, And they're like, Kodak is like, look, we can't even pay you guys what we previously agreed to pay for maintenance and upkeep, which means if we're gonna continue here, you've got to figure out how to lower our overall annual costs, yeah. which means this ride has to become far cheaper to operate and maintain. Oh, okay. All right, fair, fair. You know, so Journey into Imagination closes October 8th, 1998. And these are the marching orders WDI has been handed, you know, that, that make this, this future world attraction cheaper to operate. And their solution to this problem, which was the journey into your imagination ride, uh, which opened, you know, October first, nineteen ninety nine, as as you hinted to with the introduction to the story, was one of the most reviled redos in the history of Disney theme parks, and how the public reacted, and more to the point, what 
Imagineering was forced to do just two years and a week later in order to rescue yeah. this attraction is, is what we'll do a deep dive on uh, on the next Disney dish. I cannot wait to uh, to hear this. Normally when, when people go over, you know, project lesson, lessons learned, um, you know, the term is, is, is post-mortem that they use. And I was like, in most cases, it's not really a post-mortem because nothing died. You should really say a postpartum review, mm-hmm. right? After you give birth to it, how did it go? In this case, though, Jim, I think post, post-mortem oh, is the accurate yeah. term for this particular. Yeah, this was, this was a, uh, 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 one of the worst redos in Disney history. Can't wait to, to talk about it uh, next week. Yeah, it's a hell of a story. So. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We have a couple new Bandcamp exclusives available now, including the one we recorded on the Disney Wish, on the history of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean attraction, and we're recording part two of our History of Cars Land shows next week. And on next week's show, as Jim said, we're going to continue our history of Journey into Imagination. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com, and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be covering everything from Bruce Springsteen's Thunder Road to Kathy Matea's 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses at the 2022 Route 66 Cuba Fest, this coming October 15th and 16th, at the Recklin Auditorium in beautiful downtown Cuba, Missouri. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.